This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Welcome everyone, my name is Alexis Boylan. I am a professor of art history and Africana studies at UConn and the director of academic affairs at the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute, the curator of Seeing Truth and the very happy interviewee of our programming series of interviews with brilliant artists and scientists and researchers and museum experts. And today is a real treat, a real treat for me. And I think it's gonna be a real treat for everybody, our, our guest, has so much knowledge, it frightens me. I will just say that. Just knows something about everything and and not just something like mundane, something amazing about everything. And I did also want to just note that all of this programming and the exhibition have been generously funded by the Luce Foundation, to whom we are very much appreciative for supporting this conversation about art and science and how we make knowledge, specifically in museum spaces. So Joel, I hate, as I say, every single episode, I hate introducing people because I feel like I'm always too stiff and I will mispronounce something and I will overemphasize the wrong thing. And then always people feel weird and old when you introduce them because you're like, oh man, that's like a lot of stuff. So I, and actually it gets at none of what a person is or who they think they are. So I have allowed each person to introduce themselves. So Joel, who are you? My name is Joel Swimler, and that's how you pronounce my last name. It's a, it's a toughie. I recently retired from the museum. The museum asked a lot of people to do early retirement during COVID, which, as everyone knows, a lot of people did that. But I was fortunate that I was in the middle of two major projects, so they asked me to extend. So I worked an additional two years, and I just really retired. And then I had this wonderful opportunity 
to work on this grant with you and Tom to research objects from our collection. And hopefully I can have time to research other objects in other collections as well, because I was looking at some of them and going, oh, I could contribute to that. So, but I, I think I should just start how I came to the museum in right out of graduate school, which was in museum studies in American art. I was offered a job at Alana State Historic Site, which is Frederick Church's house in Hudson, New York. And that's just an amazing house. It's a Persian castle completely filled with his original items. The, the family had always preserved it. And there's a few things missing, but everything was pretty much there. And now that I look in the back, I think, oh, that's just like the, the pinnacle of cultural appropriation, because this is a man who just loved the exotic and just filled this house with the exotic. Living in Hudson was pretty isolated, and I found myself going to New York City, which was about two and a half hours away every weekend. So I decided that I needed to find a job in New York City, and I applied to many institutions, was offered a couple of jobs. But I was offered a job at the American Museum of Natural History, which is not my background is in science, it's in American art. But they had an NEA grant in 1990 to identify and catalog their fine art collection. And that is probably the most amazing job anybody could be offered because essentially I came into the museum working out of the library and I went looking through all the closets and storage areas of the museum. And this, as people know, this museum is vast and there's just so many things. And at the end of that project, I had identified over 2000 objects, art objects, and not, not the indigenous art, obviously, it's the, what they considered fine art, which I don't know if that's an appropriate term. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it was identified in 1990 was the fine art collection. And it's just, you, you know, this, this museum is old, it dates from the 1870s. And it just had collected so many things over the years. And I would open a closet and there'd be a Catlin painting, or I'd open another closet and there'd be 20 Audubons, you know, sitting in a row. And so I was able to identify them. I did basic cataloging and then I created a database. I was not able to do the print collection because that's even bigger and vast. So I mostly focused on paintings, watercolors, sculpture, murals, and kind of mixed media pieces. And then after that, the library liked me. So they offered me the job to be collections manager. Mm -hmm and special collections manager. And so I was able to come in and work with the special collections here, which are vast and numerous, millions of photographs, artwork, the, the whole bit. And one of the things I was doing a lot was working with the exhibition department on exhibits. And at that time we were doing the 125th celebration of the museum and we did an exhibit and I worked very closely with the exhibition department and I realized I really enjoyed doing exhibits. So I moved over there. And for the next, say, 25 years, I worked on the temporary exhibition program at the museum. And that also was an amazing opportunity because instead of focusing, you know, I love the scientists here, but I don't think I could study fruit flies all my life or, <laughs> you know, some thing. But with the exhibition department, Essentially, every couple of months, you're starting a new project. And then, and then you know, I, I was so lucky because I was able to do the Diamonds exhibit and work on Einstein exhibition and the brain 
And this opportunity also flew me all over the world to look at collections and to work with, with other institutions and in bringing their objects to the museum. So that was an amazing, an amazing opportunity. And I, I just think back and it's, people can't really say that they held a 15,000 year old basket from Israel or that they were able to put Elizabeth Taylor's engagement ring on their finger. I was wearing a glove, but on their on their <laughs> finger. And it was, you know, it was over 20 carats owned by- What I Jim. love, Joel, is that what I love about you and that I feel real kinship with is that those are equally important things and equally exciting moments. Oh, I held the third because, largest diamond in my hand. Yeah, no. I actually went downtown with a guard to collect it. So I, I've just had, I would say, amazing adventures, you know, touching Einstein's theory of relativity document. Yes, it was, you know, encased or one of my first projects was Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester. Mm. I mean, you, you can't, <laughs> you can't beat that in the, the world of art and science and just, just history. It's just amazing. So I think I've had some wonderful opportunities here and done an amazing, wonderful things. And I've always had a love of the library and its collections. And any project that I worked on, I always came here first because mm -hmm. you never know because the museum and its libraries have just collected everything <laughs> through the years. So, so I just want to actually let everybody know, I mean, Joel, you really sort of in your very modest way, sort of like, oh, right. And I did this cataloging of all of the art objects in the museum. But as someone who came after you in terms of needing that research, it's phenomenal. I mean, and the museum before that, I mean, the museum has a very complicated relationship to the idea of art and the idea right. of objects. And you suggested this with, of course, there's a lot of problems around the questions of indigeneity and what perhaps white settler colonialist scientists might imagine as art or might imagine as a specimen might have very different kinds of designations to the people who made it. The flip side of that, of course, is that a lot of very famous and not famous artists made works of art for the Natural History Museum that then were not considered scientific enough, were not interesting enough, and just sort of were put away in cabinets. I think one of the things that our, our, our listeners might also want to hear or, or just need to know is that each, at the AMNH, each office is kind of like a fiefdom, like, you know, that the anthropology, the anthropologists are their own department and paleontologists are their own department. So you really did have to go to the whole museum. And I can only imagine digging through, digging through all kinds of spaces, looking up at ceilings, also attic spaces, murals that have walls. been covered up and all that right. sort of thing. So, I mean, I, I do want to just sort of note, you were very modest about it, but you've done an incredible service to, I think, those of us who study U.S. visual culture and sort of documenting this. A good story. Let me just interrupt you yeah. about the issues I, I encountered. I went to the entomology department with and met with the, the, you know, the foremost scientist on spiders, Norm Platnick. And he's like, oh, what are you, what are you looking for? And, you know, he actually had some framed pieces of art in his office. And I said, oh, things like that. And many of those things were old scientific drawings and collections. But he said, oh, you know, maybe you'd be interested in this, but it's not art. It, it's, it's scientific illustration. Mm -hmm. 
And so he opens a drawer and pops a, I don't want to say a shoebox, but something old and decrepit. And inside were, was a collection of watercolors of American spiders by a man named Nicholas Hentz from the 1820s, one of the first scientific illustrators in America. Right. I mean, he predates all the famous or, you know, um, bird illustrators. And I'm like, oh, yes, be very interested in that. <laughs> and even though I found what was in that drawer and started that, that conversation that he had them, people after me, uh, like Tom and May here in the library, you know, went there maybe 12 years ago. I think he had retired and his, his scientific assistant said, oh, would you be interested in that? And they actually found more of them. And it turned out to be an unpublished manuscript of American Spiders that oh. was never published. Wow. And they've said, oh, we'll take those. <laughs> and they were able to bring them back to the library. They were all encapsulated and they were able to do the research. And some of those spiders were the first descriptions of spiders, but because they had never been published, someone else was able to name them, but he had described them. So I know one of the questions you have is what's the importance of archives? Right. And I think especially in science, it's important to have a history of how things were named. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if someone discovers some strange bird in the middle of nowhere, they would come to the library to see if someone else had seen it and described it and possibly published and named it. Um, that's just that's just part of the process here. Mm -hmm. But you know, pre-photography, when people were describing, they had to draw it, especially if they were going to publish it. And that's why we're particularly rich in scientific illustrations. Right. Photography imagines or people imagine that photography resolves issues. But as we have discovered and I've talked about photography can be faked. <laughs> it can be faked. Um, uh, but also, I mean, I think that, you know, when collecting scientific samples, colors fade animals, you know, that you can film animals, but that there is also still something about illustrators doing their work that is is, is just also fascinating because the photograph becomes such a uh, such such a way of sort of imagining truth that we forget about the ways in which truth was identified and realized and how much knowledge right. is built on that truth, which is actually has drawings of spiders as sort of crucial parts of it. So right. those those drawings might not be the things that we look at particularly now, but it's not that we haven't built on that. And so if we're going to talk about a foundation of knowledge, we can't ignore it. I mean, I'm interested though because I do think that there is this tension. And, and I'll just actually say that this is my perception as a scholar that's worked in the museum and with the museum. And I'm on team archives, right? Like, I mean, I can't pretend like I'm on any other team. Like I'm team archives. I want the archives to take over the whole museum. Like that's, you know, I'm an art historian. That's what I care about. But I do sense, and I sense this in the historical documents, that there has been some antagonism between, for example, the exhibitions department. It is very interesting and not always the case that exhibitions won't come from within their own departments, but will be coming from exhibitions departments who will then go to home departments for information, but sort of manage That's the... not always the case in every museum. Many no. museums are smaller and the exhibits come out of, quote, the science department. Right, right. And so then again, I think that, you know, the, the archives, you know, there's always been a kind of paper trail of, you know, 
writings and copies of letters and that sort of thing. Which but is, movement, you're, we're legally responsible to have that. Right. Um, as, movement, as a 501c or whatever it's called, right, corporation, right. we have to be able to show somebody that what we've done. But the movement of what we call, what was originally called, and that's why I'm using these air quotes, at the museum memorabilia is actually a relatively, I mean, you know, not relatively, but, you know, that that's a process that gets started mid 20th century. And, but I do sense that there is, I mean, and of course, right, there are limited resources at any institution, that there is some tension between why bother keeping all of this, all of these old dioramas or right. all of these illustrations. Spending we, money to preserve them. Right. And also then, I mean, I think that the other added question is like a lot of pieces, I and mean, we were talking about this and mentioned it earlier, and I'm not in any way referencing pieces that belong back in tribal locations, but pieces that have been sort of taken out of context and then the department is like, oh, we don't, we wouldn't use this now. We wouldn't exhibit this now. We don't need this now. Why, why keep all of this? And it's not just keeping it, it's maintaining it and conserving it and studying it. Because I think that in many ways, the museum itself advocates itself as a forward-thinking, future-looking, scientific driving machine that then also educates the public about science. But that's not what archives do, right? Like archives are not future. I'm going to propose something radical that I was just saying. Any museum, once it's established, the entire museum is an archive. Mm -hmm. uh, collecting material culture, collecting scientific research. The instant that research is done, it's an archive. The instant, you know, an anthropologist goes and to a culture and collects material culture and brings it back, all that material is part of just a vast archive. And I, I look at a library as an archive, a museum as an archive. I think anything, any institution, sorry about that, <laughs> any institution that collects anything or does research on anything, they essentially become an archive. And I think it's some. I mean, I, I look at some of the stuff we've collected and I'm like, oh, we have too many of those. We really should, you know, be more careful about what we save just because we run out of room. Mm -hmm. And then we have to kind of investigate and research those items and saying, well, what's important? What do we think is going to be important to the future? And I think one of the biggest things is, or looking at what you're you're saying, is what people deem not important today may be important a hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. And I think any collections, any museums have to have to think to the future. And 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 they they have a responsibility, a social responsibility to preserve these things. And uh, you know, I we were talking about returning things. I I I must admit I'm I'm mixed about things like that. Should the, the British Museum return the Parthenon freezes? What happened, he says, well, they preserved them because they would have been destroyed when, uh, you know, when it was bombed. But I also think, oh, then I think they should return them mm -hmm. to the government. And I know that's going to be a political hot pot. But I'm also an immigrant in a country where sometimes the immigrants in the United States outnumber the country they came from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important 
that those people have an opportunity to see their culture without having to travel and spend the money to go back. And so the collections, the Met, the collections here, I, I do find important. I do think that human remains should be returned because I personally have no qualms about human remains. They don't, they don't, I don't, you know, I think when someone passes away, it just becomes part of the earth, but other cultures don't view that way. And I, I think we need to, I don't want to say indulge, but I think we need to respect that. But I also think that our collections that we made of cultures from around the world are very important to the people here in America. I mean, I, I think we have so many immigrants from let's just pick a Ghana. And I think that the fact that they can come and look at their, you know, this is, you know, these are historical objects. It may not be what, you know, they use today. But they can come here and look at look at the objects that their their ancestors used. I think it's important. Um, I'm you know as as part of the project, as you know, I'm researching a Charles Alston, a Harlem artist from the 20s and 30s. And when I was reading about him, I was amazed that he had to come to this museum to research African sculpture because no other museums in New York City. The, the Met hadn't started their quote primitive collection at that time, but this was the only place where he could go and look at what his culture produced in Africa. And I find that that's a, that's amazing. And that's, that's important. I think for everyone to be able to do that. Right. So I, I know I'm not really answering your question about the importance of archives, but I think collecting for the future, because we don't know what's going to be important. We have, memorabilia meetings once a week and I've, I've been invited to be part of that and we look at all the things that are collected in memorabilia and I think the questions I always ask how do you think that will be used in the future do you see that being used in an exhibit do you see a researcher who would be interested in that and then and almost in every case we find some importance in it just the fact that it was produced is important Mm -hmm. uh, but do we need 30 examples of it? So this is so fascinating. And it relates back to an interview that I did with two biologists at mm -hmm. UConn and about their biodiversity collection. And it's very funny because I, I very much more as, again, somebody whose disciplinary area is in visual studies, my understanding of museums is always one of space crunch. And, and I know that this also sort of contradicts with what a lot of people would say is that also all museums have too much stuff. And, you know, the Met only shows like, you know, 5% of what we they show own. 1%. So. Right, exactly. I mean, that, that sort of there, there's this there is this question that hovers over art museums or just sort of museum institutions that often sort of emphasizes this idea of there's too much. It was interesting talking to these biologists because they were aghast at my suggestion that like, why did you need so many samples, so many dry samples, so many wet samples? Like that all of these, you know, they, they, we had this really sort of active conversation offline actually about, you know, I, at one point in one of my questions, I said something about, you know, this seems like a lot of dead animals to me. And they're like, that's actually really offensive to us. Like this is, that's really offensive. And right. that's actually really missing the entire point of how much diversity we need to make any kind of knowledge. And I was thinking about how interesting it is that in art and material cultures and collections, 
we're encouraged to think of diversity, but in a very sort of small way and not in terms of like, we actually need all of these different kinds of examples because each of them highlights these sort of different aspects that at different moments have been, you know, privileged or that, that you can't get a real, you know, I mean, again, and they, the scientists use this example, like you can't pick 30 humans and imagine that you have any sense of how, like, you can't make That's any perfect analogy, right? Yeah. You can't make any biological, you know, assessments of anything because right. that's not enough. It's not enough. It's, it's not a scientifically valid argument to make. And so that their parameters of knowledge are in some ways, you know, what they were arguing. And again, I'm just sort of pooling all these really interviews is this sort of idea that no more is more knowledge more is never less more is always more because if you don't have enough then all you're getting is random information in a small Um, sample i mean I, i look at you know we have vast natural history collections here and I'm so many dead animals, if I can right. say, <laughs> but yes, or, you know, we have, I think, you know, I, I love the fruit fly analogy. We have 1 million fruit flies and we probably have millions of ants and things like that. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yukon is the ant. You told like, me that are, about that. Yeah. That's why you yeah, said no. that ant. But I look at how much DNA research has changed in the last Mm. 20 years. And I feel that it's important. I mean, we have a frozen tissue lab, but we also just have samples of everything. A hundred years from now, who knows what they will be able to determine from that ant that was collected in an anthill in Madagascar, what knowledge they will gain. You know, I, I know there are sampling collections to see how pollution has increased and how heavy metals have increased. And I think that's all going to be vastly important. And I think your analogy of, you know, collecting humans, not that I'm saying advocating. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no he meant no. just sort of, yeah, no, he meant, yeah. no, saying, no, no. I mean, if you came in New York City and chose randomly 30 people on the street, they would be so vastly like, well the first question would be what street like <laughs> right. what, you know, like that even right. in a place that prides itself on incredible diversity you can absolutely go to any location and right. find you know, I know as much yeah. as we may talk about the, the the colonial collecting in the past but i think in many times they they came out especially at this museum here that they were collecting because these things were going to disappear and that's animals that's cultures although i will say i mean i just want to put this on record is that you create that narrative and it justifies the narrative right Right. i mean there becomes this way in which that narrative of collection becomes a manipulation of power although i mean i just I, i mentioned this only to sort of suggest that i do find it really interesting that that we don't actually apply the same idea of the need for diversity and need for completion and a kind of wholeness when we think about our own collections that we are so often thinking about paring it down, 
finding the best example. And of course, that's already that's already perhaps folly in this sort of idea of like, well, what is best to the group of people sitting around at that moment is also about how much access you have, what else is out there, that kind of thing. So but I also I would love to think of museums as being a vast lending library. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the museum is very good about lending scientific specimens to other scientists who are working. But I also think that art museums, mm -hmm. you know, if we have 95% of our collection in storage, I, I really, and I wish there was the money and the inclination to do that. But, you know, we should be opening up or lending materials to into a small village in Guatemala. And, you know, I'm not saying that we give them these things, but I think if we lend them and show them how to preserve them and then how to interpret them in their own words and, and language. I, I, you know, I, I think the future of truth without borders, I would love to see that just, the, the, you know, we could be able to do this. I, I, you brought up a point about, I think one of the interesting things about the evolution of the museum, I, I look at the hall of ocean life. Mm -hmm. So the earliest incarnation of the, the hall was just, oh, look, we have all these specimens and they're stuffed and they show, I don't want to say the diversity, but they just show that, oh, look, this is, comes from the ocean. And then in the 20s, they changed that and the Hall of Ocean Life and many other halls in the museum were what can the natural world provide to man? So it looked at whaling, it looked at oil exploration, and the, the focus was that, it was just... How, I mean, you, you look, we had a hall of building stones. We had a hall of wood. It was looking at how mankind can use these collections. And then in the 60s, that radically changed and they went to ecology and preservation. What can we do to preserve these things? So instead of thinking as they thought in the 20s, oh, we're going to lose these things, they really started focusing on how do we save and preserve them. Right. And I think... That's with anything in life, things evolve. Yeah. And one hopes they evolve or they evolve to where you want them to be. But, you know, evolution is a, is a finicky thing. Sometimes I look at politics today and I'm horrified how things have evolved in many areas. Devolve. I, I mean, I, I have um, yeah. devolved. <laughs> I mean, but it is a change and you know that some of those people are becoming the majority so is that evolution i have family members that i'm horrified that they're highly educated and the things they believe in it's just i'm like oh my god i can't believe you believe that and you you know you've got your phd in <laughs> oil you know technology and i'm like no that just isn't a go but that's a, that's another that's another exhibit and another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's get back to some fun stuff. So one of the things that Joel has been doing specifically for the Seeing Truth exhibition is working on the instigator items. And one of the things that happened over the process of sort of picking out some instigator items from the collection and then the pandemic hit. So then there was this sort of major pause of all kinds of things and the library and accessibility and that. And then things got sort of moving again and Joel came on board and Joel has really transformed in a really positive way, sort of the 
the stretch of the instigator items. And so much of the very cool research that has been done has been done because of Joel and Joel's work, along with Katrina and our fabulous TAs, Joel, who you work with, who put it all on the web and make it so that it can be sort of moved around in different ways. You know a lot about the collection. You've known a lot about the collection, but I also know that there are things that you have discovered that have been like, what? Right. Oh, tell us some of the some of the fun stuff. What 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 have you found while digging around looking for truth in your collection? <sighs> right. I mean, that's part of the the hardest part of my job is that I'll start something and then I'll get waylaid because I'm fascinated with what I'm reading and it's about has nothing to do with what I'm researching, but I'm like, "Oh my god, I didn't know that." Or, "Oh, look at this." <laughs> but I, you know, I look at each, I mean, you, you, one of the questions you had said you were going to ask me is what my favorite object is. And I must admit, my favorite object is whatever I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. But I look at one of the first ones that I did on my own that hadn't been looked at by anybody else. And that was on Toshi Aceda. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were pretty watercolors of fish. And I didn't know a lot about him other than he went on a boat and he did painted pretty pictures of fish and just researching that okay part of that is the, the whole idea that pre you know color photography and the fact when you collect a fish and you put them in alcohol they lose their colors so it was very important that you had an artist on any collecting trip and then when I started looking at the man I just became fascinated this was a real renaissance man this is a man came over from Japan, wanted to get an education. His family lost their money because of the, the Tokyo earthquake. Mm -hmm. But he, he worked hard and he found a place for himself working for this museum, working for the, the museum in San Francisco. He became, he tried out everything. He became a taxidermist, he became a photographer. He, be, he was a really talented artist. And then World War II happened and he and his family were sent off to a camp. And I'm like, oh my God, that's just, and this is a man who embraced America, embraced what it could do, and sent him to a camp in the middle of Nevada. Mm -hmm. And then when he got out of the, I mean, he still did his artwork when he was there. It wasn't, it was more social commentary on life in the camp. But when he came out, he was able to find his footing again in a, a scientific institution. And they embraced him and he re finally retired there, uh, you know, at, I would say at the top of his field. And just reading and learning about him was just so fascinating for me. It, you know, what I thought was just pretty watercolors of fish just had such a rich tapestry. And then I think part of it was that he was the man who on the expedition for the museum went to Easter Island and made a cast of one of the Moai. And then that cat, or he made a mold, I should say, of a moai. And then that mold came back to the museum. And later on, they made a casting of it. And then the fact that in the, I don't know, 2000s, mm -hmm. that became a star in a, in a silly fun movie, Night mm -hmm. at the Museum. And within weeks of that movie coming out, that object was in the back of a hall that was... <laughs> <laughs> a hall that was known for you go there to make out because no mm -hmm. one went to it at that time. Sorry, Margaret Mead, but that was a very quiet hall. Very dark and quiet. You have very to, dark and to quiet. get there. Yeah. And 
it became the destination spaces right like they are living spaces like desires you would go in there and you would say you know teenagers hanging out because they it was quiet and their teachers weren't bothering them but then all of a sudden two weeks after that movie came out it became a destination just because of a character named donda Mm -hmm. it just is amazing to me and it all is because this this man had made a cast of it in the 20s Right. and brought it back and just the connection there is just fascinating and you know what is the truth i mean i think the british museum carted one away i'm sure the museum if they could have they would have carted one away but they were too heavy for the boat they were on thank god <laughs> but just all the layers and i know katrina was like oh but you have to ask questions about it and i'm like well just reading about it forms questions in your mind and right I, I, so I, I've been, I was hard pressed to come up with questions for people about it. I'm just thinking, well, just reading all of this just forms so many questions in your mind. How did this man who had biting flies and had to carry his water for the plaster create a mold that then created an object that became an icon for millions of people? Right. And they, they come here, they line up, they get their selfies with the Moai. And there are Moais in many museums. I mean, you could buy one, you know, for your desk. And there's, like I said, they carted one off to to England. And then they leave little packets of gum. And it's just (laughs) the evolution and the transition of that object is just... I have to say, though, what I love about this conversation is that you have your sort of knowledge about the artist. And so Katrina, just for our listeners, is a philosophy GA who's working on the exhibition and the website and has worked very closely with Joel. So she always brings this whole other set of philosophical. Right, which has been great. She's been sitting there working on her dissertation. And so she has all these different kinds of questions about objects. And of course, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to your story, Joel. And I'm like, this is an obvious story about how visual culture is the most important way in which we communicate ideas. And that Night of the Museum is just as important as any other part of this story in terms of everybody's move in terms of making knowledge and visual culture and that sort of thing. So I mean, I think one of the things that's so great and has been a real treat on this project has been also the way we each come at these objects with our own set of questions and truths and the knowledge that we want to hear and sort of see sort of manifested but and I will say this too they are not just nice pictures of fish they are stunning Um, and they will be at the exhibition at the vet and hopefully when the exhibition is at the AMNH they'll be there too because they really are gorgeous and so worth seeing and they are examples of the kind of thing that gets tucked away it's lost perhaps at scientific um... they were published in books but you know not everyone's going to take the time and effort to go get the book turn to the page and then so much of the color is lost in the printing process. But I mean, you can really also feel, it is interesting because Joel sent me, and we can put a link to some of his works in internment camps, and you can see the same hand. I mean, it it is very different subject matter, but the hand of the artist remains, and it is also very interesting to see the sort of connection between the two. All right, Joel. And after doing that, I was like, oh no, we have to get one of his paintings if we can, but unfortunately, there. They're mostly in Japan, so it's very yeah. difficult to, 
Well, part of the thing that I think is lost a bit is how many really amazing artists took those talents and focused them on natural history and in the museum. And it would be amazing if more of those artists, their stories, their lives sort of came to the fore. Because I do think also, like Charles Alston, that it, it also was a location that often gave voice and place to a lot of people that often in other locations in the art community were silenced and not provided support. So I also think that there's this very interesting way in which female identified artists, Black artists, Asian artists are represented in ways in the museum and in your collection, often in ways that are not similar to the way that they're represented at an art museum, for example, right. but they are works of art and they are in, in the broad sense of they are important monuments of visual culture. All right. I am going to put you on the spot now, Joel. I saw you already trying to wiggle out of it. <laughs> we ask everyone at the end to talk about the instigator item that provokes you the most. So maybe not the one you like the most, but the object that maybe provokes you the most, that makes you, that fills you with questions. And not just because you haven't researched it yet. That's not fair. I, I'm going to say it's, and I, I must admit, I'm researching it this week, but I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know how to even describe it. It's the gorilla drawings, the anatomical mm -hmm. gorilla drawings. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm, one part of me is horrified that they had to go and collect these animals and kill them and dissect them. And then they made these amazing drawings of doing that. And I could, half of me is like horrified by it. And the other half is just an awe of the time and energy they spent in documenting these magnificent animals. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know where I am at on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very, it's interesting. I think it was I'm trying to think who did the initial essay on the Ravens. They, they didn't bring that part up that the fact that we had to go and collect that. And I definitely want to bring that out somehow. I, even the people who collected them, Dr. Raven, I was saying that it's just, he was very sad that he had to collect these magnificent animals, but he went and shot and killed them. So I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard, tough one. I but think the drawings are just stunning. stunning from a, from an, I would say, an, you know, being partly an art historian, it's like, these should be in MoMA. These should be at the Met. Um, they're just amazing. I mean, just the technical skill, but just looking at what they say. And I, I just don't know. So I'm working on that. And I think that probably those have given me the most things to think about and be emotional about. It's funny. I mean, I would say, I mean, I think those drawings are, well, I think they're Rorschach tests, right? That right. everybody walks up to them and has a reaction. And that reaction is probably one that tells other people very much about who they are and that sort of thing. I will say that I knew I wanted to do an exhibition because Tom showed me, Tom Bayonne, who is the director of the archive, Tom showed me those drawings and I, I gasped. I mean, they right. are visually overwhelming. And, you know, I didn't even see, I saw a full body image. And then because of subsequent research, actually the ones that will be at the Benton are our arms and then a, a, a skull head piece, but just as sort of the, the, the contrast of the detail with then the sort of the micro and the macro, right. Is right. just, there's very few visual objects that are trying to work us 
both at the same time with such precision. And it is truly credit to the illustrators because it's not an easy thing to do. It's been fun researching them because I, you know, I discovered that one of the researchers liked to work late at night because the subway trains disturbed her hand while she was drawing. So she would work from like two to six when there was, I mean, the museum does shake a little bit with the subway. It does, yeah. (laughs) And then another one, actually requested permission to work from her home studio, hmm. which brought so many more questions because they weren't answered in, in that letter. But it was like, did she take the specimens home to work <laughs> on them? Or did she take, you know, an image or a drawings? But right. the fact, you know, that this is someone, especially in this the, the day and age of COVID, that people were working from home. Well, this is someone in the 1940s that requested to work from home because it was easier for her to do right. and got permission to do it. Right. Uh, and then, you know, both of them then went on to such diverse projects, went to India and illustrated Indian folktales, such a total difference than her anatomical drawings. Right. And the other one became, I would say, a working fine artist in the South. And she mm-hmm. did very abstract work and made her, made her living off of that. So mm-hmm. it's just you know, these, these are when they're in their, in their youth doing this. But, Interesting. Uh, Again, it's been so worthwhile to sort of also think about the deep dive of who's making these images. Then how are those images moving around? How are these pieces of these artists that are all sort of moving through New York and having their own, that this is part of their own artistic or personal journey. And that intersects with the history of how we understand bodies and the universe and all that sort of thing. All right, Joel, last question. And it is again, a question I have asked all of the people who are interviewing and everybody also, this is the traditional thing is that people balk at one. They want like, can I just give you five truths or can I, you know, so they try to get around the question, but the question is, I need you to tell me one thing that you know is a truth. And then tell me how you know that it is the truth. What evidence do you have? And again, why is this your truth? Something you know? Yeah. I, I looked at that question and I honestly did not know how to answer that because as I've seen by looking at all these things, there is there is no truth with anything because it's always open to interpretation. It's, I mean, what I may see as truth this year, next year, I may see it as something different. So I'm, I am going to evade it and not tell you an absolute truth. I'm so sorry. You know what? Maybe uh, that's your absolute truth. Is it I mean, my absolute truth, I guess, is I, I love looking at collections and art, artwork. I, I don't know. To me, that's a personal truth. Okay. But that's a truth. Uh, Why is a yeah. personal truth not a truth? That's well, a yeah. that's true. <laughs> that's, that's also true. <laughs> but it's what is amazing to me is that the research that I'm doing today, someone ten years from now could reinterpret it all, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I mean, that's that's what we were looking at when I was thinking about truth and what is truth, and I was thinking, well, is a fiction book truth because it's a work of imagination. And I was thinking, well, it is because it's a product of that person's culture and life. And mm-hmm. that is their truth. Mm-hmm. And the, the imagination is, is, a, is a truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. 
those are those are my 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 few words your musings on truth i like it i think it's very cohesive actually i think it's a good good note to 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 sort of end on you've been listening to a special seeing truth episode of the why we argue podcast future of truth edition many thanks to toby napolitano at the university of california merced who handles our sound and thanks to our sponsors the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.